This is episode 22 with former Australian cricketer, now cricket commentator and broadcaster, Melanie Jones. G'day legends, welcome to this special episode of The Process of Success. One of the reasons I say it's special is because of our guest, Melanie Jones, who I'll go more into in just a second. The second reason this episode is special is because we are recording it in India. The Karnataka Institute of Cricket in Bangalore is a strange place for two Aussies to record a podcast, but there's no better setting to discuss the journey of one of Australian cricket's true stars. Mel and I are in Bangalore for different reasons. I'm running a cricket mentoring tour for young cricketers from Australia and the UK to experience India and train and play in the subcontinent conditions, while Mel is here to commentate on an IPL match in a couple of nights, but I didn't want to miss this opportunity to hear the story of this legend. Melanie, or Mel Jones, is a former Australian cricketer who, in recent years, has turned herself into one of the best cricket commentators going around as she travels the world commentating on the major tournaments, including the Big Bash, IPL, and will soon be in the UK commentating on the World Cup. Mel was an elite player. She played five test matches and 61-day internationals for Australia and is a member of the prestigious club of cricketers who have scored a century on Test Taboo with 131 against England in the 1998 Ashes series. Having played all her representative cricket when women's cricket wasn't professional, Mel has been a huge advocate for the women's game and is credibly happy to see the best cricketers in Australia and around the world become professionals in recent years. Since retiring, Mel has done various things, but in recent years has built her reputation in commentary boxes around the world. She not only brings a great deal of experience from playing at the highest level to the commentary box, but through her hard work and love of the game, she also brings a real depth of knowledge about each and every player. It was awesome to sit down with Mel and hear how a girl from the country has forged a very successful life in cricket, both on and off the field. In this episode, we discussed... How she began playing cricket at her grandparents' place with her older male cousins and how the circumstances in those games shaped the player she was in international cricket. How Peter Hanscom and Sam Harper's fathers played a pivotal role in her cricket career. How she was never a pro and had to manage working, bits and pieces jobs with playing international and domestic cricket. How she was stuffing her face with a prawn cocktail at the back of the room when her name was first read out as being a member of the Australian squad. How she took a big leap to leave her steady career to pursue a career as a freelance cricket commentator and how it's paying off in spades, plus a whole lot more. When in India, anything can happen, and on cue, the power went out halfway through our interview. But, as all true professionals do, Mel carried on as if nothing had happened. No doubt you'll pick up our mutual love for this beautiful country throughout the conversation. Mel is cricketing royalty and it was a pleasure to spend the morning with her at KIOC. Her energy and passion for the game is obvious, which I'm sure you'll hear in her voice. So let's get into this episode. Hey legends and welcome back to this special episode of The Process of Success. I'm in India and I'm with a special player, Melanie Jones. Mel, thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. So, um, as I said, I haven't done an episode of Process of Success episode for a while, so it's really special to have Mel, who's here on IPL Commentary. Um, now, Mel, all of my guests, I try and take them back to where Have had success. Began. Is that what you're going to start with? Not no, okay. <laughs> what, Pressure. Uh, take people back to where it all began. How did you start playing cricket? Uh, pretty much like any other Australian kid. Uh, my grandparents lived in a small country town in Victoria called Rutherglen, known for its fantastic wine, particularly fortified wines. Um, my mum grew up there, so every holiday session we'd, we'd go back to Seenan and Pa. I had um, six male cousins, 
all older than myself, um, so we would just be constantly out in the backyard uh, playing cricket. Now, six older male cousins meant that I didn't get to bat a lot, so I was bowling for most of the Australian summers. Um, around the hills hoist, uh, I was telling the kids before we had the stock standard rules of, you know, one hand, one bounce, but also if you hit Nan's chook shed, you're out for the summer and all those sorts of things as well. So, I mean, it sounds, it was, it was a truckload of fun, but I look back on it now and I think a lot of my cricket sort of skill set actually derived from that backyard too because spiky bush on the cover drive meant that if you got the ball in there you could keep running until you got the ball out and as soon as the hand went in it would cut you so you'd get heaps of runs so I was a lot better on the uh, the cover drive than I was on the hook shot which was Nan's trip check. Yeah right and was there cricket on the TV all the time and was it all year round or were you playing other sports as well? I know uh, it was a bit of a sports nuffy as a, as a kid loved playing any kind of sport um, Started off in, did a lot of gymnastics really young, um, which I thank my mum for immensely. Uh, gymnastics and little athletics, because uh, foundation skills, I certainly put that down to um, body awareness and fielding, particularly later down the track. Um, didn't do, got out of gymnastics when they told me I had to wear a leotard and point my toes. That wasn't really my skill set too much. Um, played basketball, did a lot of that. Um, high school sport at Elwood High um, was great there, doing a lot of volleyball and the likes. but. Um, always came came back to cricket yeah right it's interesting you say that I, i've just recently become a parent and i my wife and i've been saying that i think the first thing we'll do is for our daughter is to get her into gymnastics because of that range of movement yep. which then is a foundation for any sort of sport or anything yeah, you do massively and it's, it's a shame because gymnastics as a sport long term is still a wonderful sport and I, I, I think sometimes they get a bit maybe a bit peeved that all these you know athletes that have gone on to other sporting careers have had a touch point with it but it hasn't continued it yeah. with it but I think they should um, you know take credit and a lot of heed to the way in which they've developed sport just across the board internationally I think it's yeah, brilliant. Yeah and it, it's a fascinating conversation that could, we could go off on a tangent about whether kids should specialise in a sport at a young age. No, no, or no. Be, be broad. <laughs> you obviously be broad. I'm a massive believer in, in being broad um, because the touch points in all those other sports, you, you just, you know, you know, you can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that starts your little recipe for success if you want to use yeah. it that in that way. Um, I think the more broader you can be, and there's going to be examples of it not being the case of people, particularly here in India, where they're, they're in, into cricket so early and, and that's all there is, and that does work as well. But I think for your long-time enjoyment of it, your understanding of just sport in general and everything, I, yeah, if you can, try as many sports as you can. Yeah, I completely agree. And now going back to your story, when did you start playing competitive cricket? Yeah, um, well, backyard was very competitive, I'd just like to say. Oh, um, it was, I was in Little Aths for a while and then I was lucky enough to go to um, Elwood High School and at Elwood High School was a fantastic geography teacher called John Hanscom and he's the dad of Peter Hanscom. And John was just, he just loved the game immensely. And there was a couple of girls at, at Elwood High that liked cricket and he got us together and bandied a, a school team together and he was brilliant. He, he took us on a tour of New South Wales and also to New Zealand when we didn't even know women's cricket existed. So all of a sudden he's, he's going above and beyond for you know, a passion for a couple of the girls in the school. It was, it was amazing. And then because we did love it so much, he then, and Deb Noonan, who was our phys ed teacher, got us involved found a couple of local clubs. So they, um, they did all the groundwork for us, basically. So I was, I'm going back now, aren't we? I reckon my first competitive club game, I would have been 14. Right. Yeah, so I hadn't played anything other than just 
backyard cricket and school cricket. And because there wasn't many girls playing at the time, were you always playing against the same players, or were you mixing in? With no, the boys it was um, no, it was it was, a, it was a women's league. The VWCA had a um, the Victorian Women's Cricket Association had a, a very strong club system back then. It was there was probably more teams back then than there are now. Right. Um, and I'd hate to say also the the Premier Grade cricket back then was probably stronger as well. Yeah. Um, we might come back to. This, you know, how do you rate success in terms of, of sport as well? I think a lot of people think that women's cricket in Australia is flying and is majorly successful, and it is at the top level in terms of Australia and WBBL. Um, but I still have some concerns around club cricket, and I think that's pro probably both the men's and, and women's cricket at the same point in time. Um, sorry, digressed a little bit. Um, so yeah, so it was a reasonably um, strong competition. So it was it was Saturday. Sunday, you know, one and two day, two day cricket back then, which was still fantastic. On either, typically it was matting. So for all the young people listening, it was, you rolled the mats out, and if you won the toss and were batting, you tended to, um, you know, just loosen it off a little bit. It was a little bit. <laughs> if you were bowling, you'd pull it a little bit harder so the ball got through. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. You, it was, you rolled them out after the toss was done? Well, sometimes, depending. <laughs> if, if it was your home game, I think. <laughs> you certainly learnt, yeah, the nuances of home, home ground advantage. Yeah, awesome. And so you mentioned Peter Hanson's father. Did you, when did you or did you ever get private coaching and did you have mentors when you were growing up? Yeah, um, it, well, he was my first ever coach. So we would go into the, uh, the gym at Elwood High School um, and I actually went back there only a couple of months back to do a talk for the, for the uh, school assembly and the gym is exactly the same. Oh. I think I still saw the holes from sky attempts at hook shots <laughs> in the roof. So I might have to start a little campaign to up, because that was a long time ago, upgrade that gym. So he was, he was my first ever, ever coach. Um, and he was very much about, as you can see in Pete Hanscom's play about footwork. Pete played a lot of tennis, um, but it was a lot about getting up and down the crease and then trying to negate any spin and doing all those sorts of things. So we, we just had a ball at lunchtime. Um, it's probably one of the reasons why I didn't do overly well in year 12, but we won't go into that at all. <laughs> um, then it was just, it was bits and pieces through sort of club and I got into the state junior system at 15, I was playing under 18s I think it was. Um, so then the likes of former Australian player Lynn Denham came into play into, into my coaching. Um, Glenn Murdoch coached us at state, Ken Davis. So you sort of had bits and pieces. It wasn't, a, it wasn't as big a thing I think for me back then in terms of individual coaches. Um, John Scholes did a little bit at the Craig Chapel Cricket Centre, um, but was lucky enough to have good state coaches and club coaches around to sort of mould me. And at what age or what point did you, obviously you loved cricket, but what point did you think, okay, I'm reasonably good, I'm pretty good, I can make a career out of this? Yeah, there's, well, there's no career, unfortunately. I, my last game for Australia was 2005 World Cup, which we won in South Africa. Um, and the, the, the two sort of monetary components that I always think about, we won the 97 World Cup here in India at Eden Gardens in front of 70,000 amazing fans. It was the most amazing day. And we got all excited because we got the, um, the big cardboard check with all the zeros on it, thinking we're finally gonna get some money out of cricket. And we forgot it was in rupees. So it was about six bottles of champagne, I think. <laughs> and then even 2005, um, I think the, uh, the prize money sort of covered the, uh, the celebrations kind of thing. So there was, there was never a payment to play cricket at all. Um, one of my last games, the room attendant um, for the game got paid more than what we did because we didn't get paid it. <laughs> so she was, I think she got a hundred bucks for the day. So, um, so yeah, so there's no money per se in, in the game back then. Um, but 
early doors when you finally when I finally realised there was an Australian women's cricket team. I watched the girls 90. 1988, when the World Cup at the MCG, so it's like the Sharon Treadray, who was my hero. I've watched her play. Um, that's when you sort of go, oh, hang on a minute, that's what I, that's what I want to do. I want, I want to play on the MCG, I want to wear the green and gold. Yeah. You know, I want to play, play cricket for Australia. And so progressing through your teenage years and into your early 20s, did you study and how did you manage your cricket and, and yeah. creating a, an income and a lifestyle? Yeah, uh, thanks mum. Big shout out to you. Um, she was my major sponsor throughout my entire career. Um, yeah, look, it was difficult times. I, I, I mentioned my poor showing at year 12 and then was trying to catch up a lot. So it was, um, it took me four attempts to get into Victoria University, which is the uni I wanted to go to to, to do um, human movement and phys ed. So in between all that, I went to university in Bendigo for a year. So I was driving up and back and Bendigo's was a two hour drive back, back in those days. Uh, twice a week to come back to state training, club training, then go back again. So it was, that all just got a little, bit, a little bit hard at times. So then I pulled out of that, then did some work for Cricket Victoria and um, Vic Sport administrationally. So I did odds and sods as I was still trying to get into university. Um, and then also you do odds and sods jobs too. So Cricket Victoria doing a lot of, sort of game development um, stuff in schools for, for boys and girls um, throughout country regional Victoria. Uh, Stephen Field, who is um, the regional manager for the, the Western Waves out that way, did a lot of stuff with him from Mildura down to, to Warrnambool and had thoroughly enjoyed it as well. Um, but yeah, so there was a, always a lot on just trying to balance things so that you could, uh, you could pay your rent and get your study done but then also get to training so they were really long days they were you know it was fitness in the morning it was days of working and then and then trainings at night well back then there obviously wasn't the money in the game there is now and all the young players growing up have such an opportunity to make such a beautiful life with all this money that's coming to the game how did your progression then go from playing club cricket to playing for the state and then playing for australia yeah um it was probably a pretty normal progression really in the sense of um, you go through the pathway system in, in Victoria, um, played under 18s and then under 21s. Uh, then at that stage, which I, I, I would like to see more and more of um, within Australia, within the women's program, got on to uh, an Australian youth team and we played New Zealand in Toowoomba. Um, so that was an under 21 side. And then uh, only 18 months later, we came to India, 1994, for a youth tour here, which was just um, one of the best things, you can ask any of the girls in that, in that tour, one of the best things we, we ever did, both as a cricketer, but also personally as well, just as a life-changing kind of moment. Um, and fell in love with India from, from, that, from that day. Um, and so, yeah, so I sort of got into the, to the system that way. And then, um, yeah, I can remember being at the SCG, uh, Victoria had lost a, another state final to, uh, to New South Wales, and they announced the team uh, in, the, uh, in the pavilion at the SCG. And I was hoeing down a, um, a prawn cocktail, not thinking that I was gonna get picked at all, and wasn't even really listening. And they said, you, you got picked? And I'm like, for what? <laughs> they said, you gotta go up. Still prawn cocktail in hand. They're like, give it over. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so that was in uh, 1997. Let's take a break from Mel for a minute and go back to our last episode with author, cricket journalist and historian, Gideon Haig. Yeah, I mean, I think one, it seems Chris's father, John, who's a, who's, a, who's a mate of mine, he was a teacher. And I think over the journey, a lot of successful coaches in Australia have been teachers, have come from an educational background. Uh, just they understand young people, 
they have an intuition for what kind of messages stick and what kind of messages uh, pass by and they just have a general sort of good teachers have a general human sympathy. It's funny that as coaching has become more specialised perhaps we've over accented the technical and on-field accomplishment to the capacity to impart wisdom. I think the other thing that we haven't done particularly well in coaching in Australia is we haven't taught players how to learn. We're very obsessed with teaching but we're not so cognizant of, of learning. How is a player meant to approach the profusion of coaching advice that they nowadays receive? Because a young player, a young elite player, will go through multiple, multiple hands in the course of their career, even over the course of a season. What messages are they meant to take on? What messages, what messages are they simply meant to consider? What messages should they feel free to reject? Now let's get back to Mel. Absolutely. So I, that's one of the reasons I came to India last year and I absolutely loved it. My first time and I thought I need to bring other cricketers to experience this. And But before you came here, what did you think? Were you a bit nervous? Uh, not at all. I was very open-minded. I'm, I'm really always keen to try new things. Yep. And to be honest, my twin brother had spent three months on school exchange when he was 16 living oh, in India. Brilliant. Yep. My mum's been here a few times. and So I have some sort of understanding, but yep. I try and live with no expectation. I just like to experience things and whatever happens, happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so I came, I, and I, I try and live in the moment. So I wasn't getting ex too excited about it. I wasn't sort of hoping for things. I just yep. wanted to see what, and as sort of you touched on, it's just such a great place. I want to try and bring as many people as I can. And through our content, we're fortunate to show people what India is and how great it is. Yeah, it's interesting you said that too, because I was lucky enough to tour here a number of times with the youth team and the Australian side. And even just touring globally with the team, it's as if you have to play for your country to tour. And I thought that's just, that shouldn't be the case because touring is one of the most enriching experiences you can have, whether or not you're an Australian player or a club player. So um, I've got a very progressive career club that I belong to back home called Essendon Maribyrnong Park, EMP. And I said to the board, I said, I want to take, I want to take the girls to India. And they went, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I think they, should, they would get so much out of the touring experience, but also coming to a completely different culture as well. So we came here in 2011 for two weeks and played in Delhi, Chennai and Mumbai um, and to this day so many of them say it was just one of the best things that they've done full stop not cricket wise or anything else um, but it just opened their eyes to, to so many new and wonderful things it changed the way in which they thought about things and saw things um, so yeah I would f feel like a uh, India tourist ambassador but I would say to people that um, it is it is worth worth a, a contemplate but definitely a, a, a trip too. Absolutely. I, I feel like an Indian tourist yeah, no. as well. I, I, I'm trying to just tell people to come. It's amazing. And one of the fathers who's here, his son's from, they're from Geelong, and he mm -hmm. said after they played a game with an Indian group, they integrated, and he yeah. said, as you know, when you win a grand final, you have that special bond with people forever. Yeah. And he said, this, this is going to be like that. This is going to be, this trip is going to be something special. All these boys and girls yeah. who have come from all parts of the world are going to remember forever. This, this time in India. Completely, completely. Um, Now going back to you, um, you obviously then got picked in the squad eating your prawn cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> um, how did your debut go and then, then what, were, what were highlights of your career I suppose? Yeah, debut was not really memorable but memorable at the same point in time. Um, played against um, Pakistan and Melbourne um, and it was one of those 
horrendous Melbourne summers, so it was 42 every day. Unfortunately for um, the Pakistan players, they were in the middle of Ramadan as well, so I don't know how they were managing to, to put on a, you know, uh, an elite performance at that stage. They, they were absolutely brilliant. Uh, we played at um, Mount Waverley at Wesley College, so this is, this is the difference between playing for Australia back then and now. Um, Belinda Clark and Lisa Kitely put on hundreds. They put on an absolute truckload and I came in with, I think it was a couple of overs to spare just going the tonk and um, yeah, got caught for a very inauspicious. Did I get, did I even, it must have been two. I think it was two, isn't that awful? I can't remember. Um, so yeah, that, that was the, the debut, debut, one day international anyway. Right, so. Test debut was a little bit better. Test debut was slightly better, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Ashes Tour, which was, um, look, dream come true. Like, I'd been lucky enough, I shouldn't say lucky enough, I'm going to stop saying that because you work your back, you work, yeah, you work your back side. Um, played in the uh, 97 World Cup here in India, which we won, and then 98 went to England for Ashes Tour. Um, and the team that I played with for the majority of my career, I think, was some of the, the best cricketers that Australia's ever produced. It was a magnificent group of group of individuals led by Belinda Clark. Um, went over for the Ashes Tour and it was a, it was a full-on Ashes Tour. It was um, five test matches, which we don't, I don't think we're ever going to see again, unfortunately. Um, so it was a long tour. And just, just to give us some more context, you weren't paid on the tour? Like you were, no. did you get like, So it was expenses? leave. So it was pure leave. So you, you lost money, basically. Yeah. Um, you got a per diem each day, but the per diem wasn't a lot. Once laundry in England, as I think everyone knows, is exceptionally expensive. So we were, you'd have breakfast and you might be tucking a few bread rolls and jam butter in for lunch and then yeah. you'd sort of, you know, see the day out kind of thing. Um, so yeah, so we got to England, so it was uh, five one days as well and full test series. And we, it was just, it was just the most amazing experience. One, because you actually got to pull on the baggy green, um, which was unbelievable. The, the first test, um, we played in was at Guildford in Surrey. Um, I'll have to say it because I know all the players there was, will remind me, it was an absolute road. It was, it was runs galore. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, it was, a, it was a road. It was a, in the terms of the day, it was, it was a hot, there were hot days too. So I think it just fell into our, our favour as well in terms of conditions. Um, and I remember I was in the 90s for ages. It wasn't as if you talk about the nervous 90s. I wasn't really nervous. I remember actually smoking some and just hitting the field. And I was just saying to myself, just don't let this one slide. I'd, because the other thing was I'd never scored 100 right. at any level. Yeah. So it wasn't wow. just for Australia. <laughs> it was um, a couple in Nan's backyard. But, you know, I don't think they, they count on the uh, Crick Info website. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I can remember it. Got it backward of point. Um, and yeah, it was just sheer elation, really. It was, yeah. and, and a little bit of, I think there was a lot of shock too, because you sort of, you get it and you're like, what do you do? Like I'd never really run a hit one before. I'm like, what am I doing here? Am I taking a hat off? Am I? <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. But um, playing a full test series was, um, yeah, an absolute honor. And in your own game, I like to ask all our guests, um, did you have any like, pre-ball routines or how did you how did you switch on and switch off and what, what did you do to get yourself focused every ball? Yeah, um, when I first started, um, I started off as a bowler. So I played Aussie Juniors um, as an opening quick. Um, and then I had some back issues and in the time I was getting over that was just batting more and more. And I think, if I look back at it now, I was probably always probably had a better 
mind frame and technique to become a better batter than I was was a bowler. Similar story to Adam Bogus. He started as yeah. a quick bowler yeah. and then a Chinaman. Yep. He, he was our <laughs> second guest on this podcast. Oh, right, okay. He went through his story <laughs> and, then he, and then he started to bat but more and more and more, more, and more, and more. made his career as a batter. There you go. So, um, so yeah, so started batting more and more and I, was, I think most people would sort of say I was sort of um, very much sort of see ball, hit ball kind of person. Um, and then I went through a bit of a, a, a bad patch and that's when I actually started thinking more about the game rather than just doing more about the yeah, game. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, there's one thing to be able to hit a thousand cover drives in the nets, but you don't get a thousand cover balls in that area to hit in the game. So I'm practicing something that I get probably one or two chances in a game to do, which you can do, but outside of that, what else am I doing and how am I getting myself um, ready for all those other deliveries and the like. So I worked a lot with um, Brian Harper, Sam Harper's dad. Um, he, was, he was outstanding for my game. And we also worked a lot on batting routines. And it was when I first really started to bring it into my game and it changed things immensely. I got picked back into the Australian team after a solid summer of, of doing this. And it was really, to start with, I had to do it very deliberately. So it was very uh, hands on grip, um, keywords being spoken at that point in time, right foot down, left foot down, exactly where the bat tap was, the look up, the keyword again, the switch on word. Um, and I did it every ball, every training, um, every club game. And club cricket for me was a, a big space and it, you don't want to downgrade club cricket, but it was your, it was your practice zone as well. So yes, you want to score runs for your club and you'd, you'd negate it so that you'd still win for your club, but there was moments out there that you were, yeah. you were trying to develop your own game, which at the end of the day would help your club anyway. Sort of thing. Yeah. So, um, and it was, it was very deliberate, like everyone sort of said it. And then as time went on, it became less and less deliberate, but it was always there. Because it was just, it was just, it was a habit now. It was just that, that routine was just sort of, it was always there. So, and it, it helped me immensely. And then if you go through a little bit of a, a trough or something, you can just pick up on it again it just goes have I am I still going through that oh yeah no that'll okay just go through even it was a couple of balls in the middle of your innings or it was a longer period of time but you always had that that baseline to go back to what were your keywords what were your switch on yeah um (laughs) what what, seam so rather than watch the ball um so that that was the that was the last word for me was was about the seam um and the the other one was clear mind so whatever's happened before is completely irrelevant. The, the, piece, the pieces that were relevant, you take in your process, but just clear mind, um, watch the same. Yeah, awesome. Um, that's something Chris Rogers talks a lot about. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He talks about you've got to watch the ball. A lot of people say watch the ball, mm. but it's about sort of picking mm. up something. It's a minute focus yeah. rather than a... Yeah. Rather, I mean, the ball is quite small, but... When you say ball, you're still sort of you're in the hand area of the of the bowler kind of thing. Yeah. Um, for for me, a lot of it was because then that seam says gives me the information. The ball doesn't really. Ball can give me line and length. Yeah. The seam will give me line and length. It'll give me out you know outswing cutter. Yeah. What happened there? And now you played. You won two World Cups. You played in the Ashes. You've done it all. How did you deal with pressure? Well, yeah, probably probably badly. If you look at my career stats, um, it was. It was interesting. It was, um, I think, also because we weren't full-time cricketers, and in a way, I think that helped me in my career now and where I am now as a as a commentator in comparison. 
Um, but I had a couple of bad, I got in and out of the Australian team numerous, numerous times. Um, and so some would say that I didn't handle the, the pressure that well. Um, a lot of the pressures for me probably came from ex things that were going on external to, to cricket and how you, you manage that while you're, you're playing. Um, you know, there was a 2004, there was a lot going on my, my, my family side. We had a death in the family and the likes and you, then you're away touring in India and um, you don't have your same network of people around you. Um, the world's, and 2004 was when the tsunami hit in Chennai as well, and we were in Chennai wow. at the time. So there's all these sorts of things going on, and the world was um, a lot less connected back then as well. Um, so there wasn't just the automatic FaceTime, you know, where we're all okay sort of thing, or, yeah. you know, I need some assistance and that sort of stuff. Um, but in saying that, you know, the resilience seems to be the buzzword of, of the decade sort of thing. It's um, your ability to find your own way out of it. And you mentioned it before about your own career. You got to where you wanted to go to in Middlesex and you thought, oh, I've sort of made it, but then you're like, well, I haven't really. Yeah. Um, so finding it your own way out of that, I think it's probably helped me long term. Um, it probably didn't help my cricket at the time, but yeah. if I look at bigger picture stuff now, you sort of think, oh, okay, I can, I can certainly take a positive out of it. Yeah, awesome. And you've mentioned um Sam Harper's father and Pete Hanson. Does that now give you a soft spot for those two guys when you're massively? When you're oh, don't you worry about that. When the Australian team was picked for the World Cup, I was where's Hanson? Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely. And look, and watching Sam go about things in the Big Bash this year, you know, and it, it's it's hard commentating too because yeah. I think a lot of people know the connection as well, um, and you don't want to get too, you know, yeah. <laughs> you got to keep a little bit of you know neutrality about it all. Um, we can just keep going. This is going to yeah, happen. Yeah, you know where we are. I was, I was watching YouTube. We're losing power. We've lost it once already, but we're just going to keep it's rolling. Cool. We're probably better in this dim light anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you do. You do have soft spots. I did a, a wonderful interview with um, Sandrew Sampson a couple of days ago, and I'd never met him before, um, and he was kind enough to give me his time. And he's just a, he's just a ripping young guy. So, yeah. you have a soft You do. It's hard not to. It's like, yeah. and parents, I know you're going to, how many kids have you got now? Oh, just no, one. Just one. Okay, so you do have a favourite. Yeah. So there we go. <laughs> when you have two, you know, yeah, you, you yeah. have soft spots for people for, for different reasons. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. So we, we've sort of started to cover a little bit more of your post career. Um, you, you now are a wonderful commentator. You're travelling the world commentating. How did, how did all that come about? How did you move from being a player <laughs> into being a commentator that travels um, the world? Well, I didn't handle the pressure well, and I got dropped from the Australian team, and I missed uh, an Ashes tour. So that was early 2000s, um, but I happened to be over in England. I, was, um, I did a lot of uh, coaching. I always wanted to get into high performance coaching. Um, so I was taking myself over to England to work in different um, uh, settings. I was with uh, Surrey Cricket over there for three years off the back end of working three winters in South Africa, uh, doing uh, girls cricket development in townships and the like. So I was, I was in England at the time. The, the Aussies were touring. Chris Matthews, who's now the CEO of the WACA, um, and former Australian wicketkeeper. She was the manager of the team and she was supposed to do the commentary for Sky Sport. Because at that time, Sky Sport had a deal with the ECB that part of their broadcast com uh, contract, so they had to at least do one women's game a year. So Chris couldn't do it because she was manager. She said, oh look, Mel Jones is over here. Um, she might be interested. And so they rang and asked and I went, no. I said, why would I want to commentate on a game I want to be playing in? Yeah, like, yeah. that's just, no. Yeah. 
and they said, it's, um, I'm going to pay you 300 quid. And I said, tell me where, when and what to wear. This is the most I've ever been paid. <laughs> and it was brilliant. So it went along, um, it was the one one day international. So that was back in, I think it was 2001. And it was with the likes of, I was trying to think the other day who was in there. I think it was Bob Willis, Paul Allett, Graham Foxy Fowler, and Charles Colville. Yeah. Um, and had no idea what I was doing. Got in there and just sort of, I just sort of said, so you just said something and yeah. put the microphone down and... So no, no sort of prompting or they didn't give you a brief or anything? No, no, nothing at all. Um, sort of got through the game, that was it. Carried on with what I was doing yeah, and right. thought, well, well, I've had a crack at that, that's interesting. Had a, yeah, and never thought anything would, would come of it from that. But then kept going back and working with Surrey, so I was there over the summertime. So I, because I'd done it the year before, they said, oh, would you like to do it again? So I thought, oh, one more game, it's not going to hurt. And so it went from, you know, for the next four or so years of just doing one game a year because yeah. I was over there. And then 2009 was probably the big shift for women's cricket. The ICC took over Women's World Cups um, and they did a broadcast component around it, which was in Sydney. So they, I think they did seven, eight, eight, eight nine games, round games and the final. Um, and that's when I was introduced to, to Alan Wilkins, who's been a bit of a mentor for me from the, the commentary side of things. Mozzie um, Makram and Danny Morrison commentated along with Belinda Clark, Debbie Hockley and myself. So the six of us working on that. Um, and had an absolute ball and still just thought, oh, well, that's it. So I was still working. So I went from, I came back after 05 World Cup, was a primary school teacher, then worked for Cricket Victoria in game development, trying to get into the coaching side of things, and that didn't quite work out. And then got out of that, and a mate of mine, Alison Tranquilly, she was cook when she played basketball for Australia, actually getting inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. 10 days time, wow. um, she started a management company for female athletes, okay. um, predominantly basketballs, a few netballs, so I started doing a bit with her and a company called Elite Sports Properties, which is now TLA, Craig Kelly's yeah. company in Australia, bought Majestic out and so all of a sudden I was a talent manager, sort of Jerry Maguire but without the money style, yeah. um, for athletes and it was just like, how did I end up here? I hope the athletes I managed didn't listen to that because <laughs> I sort of knew what I was doing. Um, so yes, yeah, so I was in that for, for a while and still, but in the background there was more and more cricket coming up, more women's cricket, and then all of a sudden, um, 2015, the IPL came up and things started to get a bit of a stretch at work and commentary, I wasn't putting enough time into preparing for commentary as I'd like and not giving uh, the people I was managing enough time either. So it got to that sort of, yeah, the pointy end of making a decision. So 2000, what are we now, 19? It was November 2016. Yeah, made the decision to, to give this a crack full time. Also most paid off. Well, yeah, at the, yeah, it was the most nervous. I've never been, yeah, that nervous making decision in my life because it's freelance. So you sort of get a bit, right. a little bit uh, scared about uh, that kind of concept, yeah. but um, it's all, it's, worked out. You've got to jump in the deep end sometimes. That's, that's it. Um, and for a non-swimmer, that's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned you had a, a, a thirst for coaching. Do you do any coaching at the moment? Are you, are you getting involved in coaching? It's, it's very difficult too. So I was away eight months last year with, with commentary. Yeah. Um, and it's similar-ish this year with IPL, World Cup and then Double Ashes. And then once I get back, so I'm with Fox Sports, it's a hectic summer mm. and you're away, you're on the road so much, it's, it's really difficult. I did a bit of satellite coaching 
probably about two years ago with um, some of our club-based players in Victoria, but unfortunately, yeah, time is yeah quite restrictive. But it's um, as I've got a teaching background. My mum's a teacher. I did human movement at, at uh, Victoria University. Um, I got a real thirst for the playing a part, or whether it's a small role or a big role in, in people's development. Yeah. So that's why I love the coaching. Hopefully, I can do it in some other way, shape or shape yeah, or form. Awesome. And you mentioned off camera you're off to the World Cup um, in a few weeks. Yep. Um, and you're at the moment you're in your downtime. You're preparing for that. Yep. What does what does a commentator do to prepare? How do you spend your time? And you're obviously become one of the world's best commentators. And it's not through chance; it's through preparation. Um, yeah, we're getting the wind up too here. The, the, the assistants, you know, <laughs> going to string this one out. No. <laughs> um, oh, look, preparation for me is, and I think that's that comes from. I suppose when you when you've gone to university and you want to prepare for a, a test or you're, you're an athlete and you're preparing for for a season, you you put the time in. And for commentary, I don't think that should be should be any different. Um, and the biggest challenge for me is having come from predominantly doing a lot of women's cricket to start with commentary where you sort of know a lot of the players to then going, I'm probably 75% now commentary on, on the men's game. There is so much cricket content these days that it's, it's difficult to, to keep up with everything that's going on yeah. in the world. As much as you want to stay up and watch cricket 24-7 on Fox Cricket, it becomes quite... Yeah, you know. <laughs> and to be honest, as a, as a spectator watching a lot of cricket, I get frustrated with some of the older commentators especially they used to be on Channel 9, I'm not going to mention any names, but who it seems they don't do any research and they yeah. continue to say the same things and they're often saying the wrong things. Mm. So when someone like yourself who puts the time and effort in has a depth of knowledge of the person behind the cricketer, yeah. it, it's refreshing and it, it makes it so much yeah. better to watch. And I think for me, um, one of the big things for me is that you don't get, you shouldn't as a commentator get caught up watching the game as you, the, the former player in a lot of sense. And, I'm going to probably explain that a little bit because you want people want to hear your take on the game, but at the same point in time, you need to know that the audience is a variety of different people. So you need to you need to educate new people to the to the game or older people to the game who don't know about a certain area. So there's a massive for me educational factor. There's an engagement factor, particularly with the whether it's Test match or T20 cricket. You you want people to. I suppose that's the other one is enjoyment. So you want to engage them into the conversation, but there's got to be that entertainment factor too. And they've got to go, go away going, I, I learnt something, I really enjoyed it, whether it was five minutes or they watched the whole whole day's play. So to do that, you've got to be prepared. So you've got to have not just the stats and the real hard data, which we know cricket people love, but you've got to have a little bit of something, something to, yeah. to go around it. Awesome. Um, that was my short version too. Yeah, <laughs> We could talk all day, um, and it's been an absolute pleasure listening to your story, but we, you are on limited time here at KOAC. We're at Kanatic Institute of Cricket. Um, Mel's been very kind to give us her time. I will finish with a few more questions before we wrap up. Where do you see women's cricket going now? It's um, obviously evolved immensely, and yep. the women's IPL is coming up. Um, where do you see women's cricket? If you look outside these doors, there's yeah. nearly as many young girls as boys. It's, it's yeah. awesome to see. Oh, it made my heart smile walking in, in this morning. It was absolutely brilliant to see, because the big thing for me too is not just that there's a pathway for young girls now, and they feel welcome in, in this kind of environment, which they certainly do, which I love. It's that 
the boys grow up just knowing that girls play cricket, so it just normalises things and it, that gets rid of all that hoo-ha and we can just get on with developing the game. Yeah. Um, I think the big thing for me with, with women's cricket is that a lot of the money is still at the pointy end, so things are, are looking a lot better. T20 World Cups are fantastic, women's IPLs growing, all those sorts of things, but for me, um, it, we need to be really strategic and have a vision for how the game grows from the grassroots all the way through. Um, so that needs people to be, sit down at the table and get it within its, whether it's a state base or their club all the way through to a national level um, and, and have that vision. And they've got to be brave and bold enough, and you've gone through this yourself, to not waver when things get a little bit tough or they think it's not going to happen. It's, it's a long-term goal. And yeah. unfortunately, a lot of people like the, the quick fixes. Um, things like this aren't a quick fix. The other big thing I would say is that it's not just an overlay of the men's game on top of the women's game. Um, yes, it, cricket's cricket, but the women's game can bring a value add to the men's game by allowing them to play the game and be administrated and coached in a slightly different way. And, it, and all of a sudden the guys might go, actually, we'd never thought about that. That might be a value add for the, from the men's side of things or vice versa, but don't just think, here's the path. We've already created the path, so you should go along this path. I think there's a, a new path that we should be allowed to. It's almost like a blank canvas yeah. allowed to paint. Uh, well, when I was here last year, I, I went back to Australia and I, told, I was telling people, I thought the younger cricketers, the girls' skills were better than the boys' skills. The boys mm. had the power, yeah. but the girls are better listeners and they pay attention better than the boys. Yeah. And I was just fascinated with how the young yeah. girls here in India. Would. There's a big thing, and, and that's another thing, is that the research, scientifically, coaching is still very male-skewed as well. Yeah. Um, I think there, there needs to be so much more done on the, the coaching of female athletes, but the, the bodies of female athletes, how that, particularly cricket, with bowling in particular, it's such a ridiculously mad action. Mm. Um, hip angles are different, all those sorts of things. How do we find a, a girl who can bowl 130 clicks? Mm. Are we teaching them something just to can we tweak it a little bit so that we can get that extra speed because of different yeah, physiques body, and yeah. all those sorts of things we, we haven't done a lot of qualitative research yeah. in in that kind of area so there's there's so many exciting things to be able to be, to be done in and around the women's game that i think will benefit the entire game absolutely absolutely mm. um now the final few questions which i ask all of my guests is yep. why do you play cricket why did you play cricket well, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I love I loved the competition in the backyard with my cousins. Absolutely love that. And when I was a young kid in Australia growing up, and I've mentioned this a few times, is that Melbourne and Rutherglen was a very white space. There wasn't a lot of brown or black faces around. When the West Indies toured Australia, they were kings. Viv Richards, Clive Lloyd, Malcolm Marshall. So I connected, my dad's from Trinidad, so I didn't meet him until I was 16, so he wasn't part of my growing up at all um, for, in terms of a physicality point of view. So, but he knew the West Indian cricketers, so when they toured, I'd get Wizard Magazine side by them. So there was definitely a connection point to, I can resonate, I, I look like you guys a lot more than I do my family, even though I love my family. <laughs> so there was definitely, uh, I, I felt connected to the West Indies and they were touring and they were doing really, really well. So I could say I was West Indian. So I think there's a little bit of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, what's your definition of success? Um, I think it's, 
think it's very individual. I think too many people get caught up in success being what other people say it is. Um, people say that I've had a successful career. I would look at certain parts of it and probably say, I, because I'm on TV doesn't make me successful. Um, have I allowed people to enjoy the game through my commentary? I would class that as being successful. Now, I, I'll never be able to sort of you know, figure that out because, you know, there's no survey. I don't want to do a survey, though, not the social media these days. But um, so, so I think people need to figure out, and I've only just realised this recently through a couple of courses back home, is what's important to you. You've got to figure out what's important to you and then try and shape your routines and habits and the like around that. And if you're brave enough to continue with that for a long period of time, you'll be exceptionally happy and I reckon that's where your success lies. That's a great answer and it's funny, I've, I've done 20 odd interviews now or, or conversations and um, everyone has a different answer but it, it often comes back to that being happy and it's, it's very individualised. Now, yeah. how can our followers, our listeners, our viewers, how can they follow you? What's the best place to follow your journey? Oh, there we go. Uh, both on Twitter and Instagram at the moment. Um, if you search Mel Jones, isn't that awful? I don't know my Twitter account. Mel Jones underscore 33 and Jones 72 on, on Instagram. Uh, and I'm actually collating a bit of content at the moment. I mentioned chatting to Sandrew Sampson. I've got Marcus Stoinis tomorrow to do a, um, a new piece that hopefully will be out in the next couple of weeks in and around uh, a bit of travel and cricket as well. Awesome, well we, we will link um, Mel's uh, social handles um, in the show notes and we'll uh, certainly be giving the, the travel show a plug. So awesome, appreciate thank you it. so much. Mel. Thank you. I really appreciate it. No, I really have thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you, and I'm sure our listeners have got a huge amount of value out of that. So, Hope cheers, so. cheers. Thank you. <laughs>Well, legends, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Mel Jones was an exceptional cricketer and has fast become one of the best commentators in the world. The same work ethic that got her to the top as a player is helping her as a commentator as she travels the world sharing her expert thoughts and opinions. She hasn't had it easy along the way. She played in a time where there wasn't enough money in women's cricket to earn a living, so she had to work various jobs to earn enough to pay her bills while still training and playing at the highest level. I'm sure you picked up how much we both love India. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something, then please share it with your friends and on your social media pages. Remember to tag me, at Skulls5, as I'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, make sure you follow Mel on Instagram, at MelJones72. We've also put the video of this chat on our YouTube channel, Cricket Mentoring. So head over there if you want to watch it and please subscribe to our channel if you haven't already done so. Thanks for spending your time with me for this episode. Hope you've enjoyed it, learned something from it and will no doubt keep an ear and eye out for Mel's commentary in the future. Now it's time to go out and get it done, legends.